Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. And before we get into a very timely, very important uh, discussion with my dear friend, Nicole Wade, and we're going to learn all about her in a minute and the things that she has to share with you guys, because uh, uh, what she's going to share is going to, I think it's going to blow your mind um, at the fact that, well, I'm not going to even say, we'll let her reveal it as we, <laughs> as we talk. But a couple of things uh, to know, uh, next week we're going to do a general conference review and it's going to be not only about uh, what went on inside that building, but what went on outside of it and the despicable actions of those protesters, uh, evangelical protesters screaming and ranting and raving about those uh, people. We're also going to have in the coming weeks, Ryan McKnight uh, from Mormon WikiLeaks, uh, Kwatu L., uh, who is a LDS kid, who is uh, an apologist, who's debated um, a number of uh, Christian apology, apologists. David Valdez, who runs a, a Messianic, Jewish, Messianic uh, Jewish group. Dave Donaldson for round two. He's coming back in a few weeks. Andrew Fagan, who has a fantastic story. And, uh, and then all of it's going to be building up over the course until October of 2019, where we're going to be uh, announcing or coming up with a brand new thing that we think is going to be really important. And we will let you know what that is in October. So um, before we get to our special guest and I get to introduce her and talk about her, let's take a quick look at something that Wendy J uh, produced for us. That's awesome, Wendy. Thanks so much. A beautiful presentation. Patrick is giving us applause. Uh, Nicole Wade. Thank you for taking time out of your, I know, busy schedule yeah. uh, to come here and sit with us and inform our audience uh, a little bit about your life. As I said before um, we started taping, uh, we're going to just take it casually. I'd just like you to open up and tell us about your life as you grew up in Springville, if I remember. Yep. And, uh, uh, and just everything about that, if you can just kind of summarize that for us and move us through your early life. Um, the reason this is important, this is a very important show to me personally. Uh, last week, we had Dave Donaldson tell a story about he works with the people in the prison, how a woman uh, was in there because of her addiction to, uh, I think, it was some sort of pharmaceutical. And, um, you know, last year, one of my dear friends from uh, growing up in Huntington Beach, uh, lifetime battle with drug addiction, uh, was murdered here in Utah. Uh, a Samoan kid got in a drug deal, went bad, killed him with a single punch to his head. Uh, dear friend of ours, uh, the McCraney family, strewn with addictive personalities. And in, within the sound of this audience, uh, watching at home and in the archives and maybe even here in the studio, there are people who are addicted to sex and food and booze and drugs and whatever else. It is really something that hits home in most families in this world. And so uh, I, some of you guys know that I sit in the mornings and I work and I go to a, a, a restaurant, a bagel shop, and uh, the manager of that bagel shop is sitting right here. <laughs> and we worked out a deal and she allows me to sit there and bother everybody. And I'm allowed to work for as long as I want. And uh, usually till about 10 or 11, then I leave and and go do other things. But this is how I met Nicole, who runs that place, and all the staff there, and keeps it going, and does such a fantastic job. And I never would have known that there was a story 
that would come out of this woman that came out after we started talking one day. And I just said, I think I cut her off. You've got to tell this story on Heart of the Matter. And so thank you for your bravery and courage. I'm going to turn it over to you. I may interrupt you to get clarification. And just tell us, growing up in Utah, what, what's it all about? Okay, so um, I grew up, I was actually born in Connecticut. Okay. Um, my father was in the Navy, um, so we did a, a, some moving around really young. Um, moved to Hawaii shortly after I was born mm. with my parents. Um, I have four siblings, or three siblings, there's mm -hmm. four of us. Um, I'm the second child um, raised in an LDS family. Um, grandparents were LDS. Um, my dad struggled a little bit with drinking when he was in the Navy, mm. um, but I was too young to remember any of that. I didn't know. That's, what, that's the story he tells me. Mm. Um, my mother's parents are, were together, um, never remarried, never divorced, uh, as far as I know, happily married, mm -hmm. um, LDS. Um, my grandmother on my dad's side um, was her her husband, my dad's father, um, struggled with uh, alcoholism mm. and um, ended up leaving the family, my grandmother and a bunch of children. Um, when my dad was three, he was the baby. Mm. And um, so were they LDS, the grandparent, your dad's parents? My, my grandmother was, but he was not. Oh. And um, so there was a lot of conflict there, and uh -huh. I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, but he left, and they ne he never came back. He, they never oh. saw him again after that. Uh, he left when my dad was three. I think the oldest was in her 20s. Mm. Um, very large family. Um, so left my grandmother, and she raised the, all her kids, uh, remarried a couple few times, and um, raised her kids on her own, and was a very devout LDS woman. Mm. Um, all her life. So I was raised in this LDS family, um, big extended family, uh, always lots of people around. I remember at a very early, early age feeling like I just didn't fit in. Like I just wasn't, why don't I fit? What, what's wrong with me? Why am I not part of this? Why? Um, and I remember like I would be given like one piece of candy and it was never like enough. I always had to go and like sneak more, um, go, you know, find out where the candy was. I remember being like, I had to be under three and I would go and like climb up on top of the fridge and raid the candy bowl. And wow. um, they could never stop me from, if I wanted to do something, I would do it. Like I, I, I got into my mom's purse when I was, I was probably three and rode my bike to the store to buy candy. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and I, we were living in Salem, Utah at that time. And so I rode my bike down the hill and around Salem Pond all the way to the store. And then back when everybody's freaking out looking for me. And I'm like, I just went to get some candy. Is <laughs> everybody freaking out? Doesn't but, everybody do this? Right? <laughs> um, so I always just felt like I was just ambitious and just wanted to do my thing and like be myself. And then. Um, were your siblings like that too? No, they were like very in line and like very, it's from what I remember, I don't um, remember them being a lot of trouble for my family, for my parents. I remember I was the trouble child. I was the one that didn't do anything that they wanted or didn't fall in line like they 
about in terms of discipline? Did they have to discipline you more? I, I think so, but yeah. you know, <laughs> doesn't everybody think, think that, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, I I don't I don't remember. Yeah, I was always the one that they saw as like the trouble or like always tried to push it mm. a little bit further. Um, we moved to Springville when I started kindergarten, and um, I remember you know things were pretty happy. I was. Pretty good. I started sucking my thumb. That was a weird thing when I was, um, when we moved from Salem to Springville, I became a, a thumb sucker and they could not get me to stop sucking my thumb. <laughs> they tried everything they could, you know, all that stuff they yeah, stick yeah, yeah. on there and like that nasty cayenne pepper. They even put me in a cast, like my thumb and this finger. So I just sucked my middle finger. Wow. And, um, just like I'll, I'll suck, you know, my thumb as long as I, so I just ripped the cast off. I ended up just, <laughs> this is not going to stop me. Um, so yeah, I was just pretty independent and free. Um, Did you feel in that young age, do you have recollection of feeling like uh, there's something wrong with me? Yeah. 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 I definitely felt like, I, not necessarily wrong with me, but like something wasn't right or like, I, I never felt like I was good enough or like um, like I was enough for my family or like I always felt like guilty and um, never felt like I was good enough or accepted hmm. even you know in the community with friends and things like that and um, so you know I had friends lots of friends and um, still but I was you know I was like the troublemaker I was always tormenting the neighbors and mm. you know um was, but just pranks yeah lots of pranks uh -huh. growing up um i think i would relate very much to you <laughs> yeah like you know hanging the the egg from the line so the cars would hit it and um putting the dead snake in the windowsill and like just random pranks to drive people crazy and then you know lots of phone pranks and yeah. all the way growing up um when I when I got into high school, I got um, I, I tampered a little bit with drinking and um, at what age? Twelve, I think I started. Like I had my first drink of alcohol. I was twelve at a neighbor's house. They had it in the fridge. It was a wine cooler, and I didn't think anything really of it. I just oh. like, huh, that was all right. And then there wasn't a whole lot of drinking besides that. I was one of those people that. Um, I would go to the party with my friends because I wanted to go to the party and I'd be like, drugs are bad, don't do drugs. You're stupid, what are you doing? Why are you getting high? Um, I would be the one that lecturing them and, and like, you're acting like a fool. And um, I remember very distinctly like being anti that. But then I would go dancing and we'd go drive up to the, to the Ritz up here in Salt Lake, you remember the Ritz? <laughs> were you, were you here? Yes. <laughs> um, so we'd drive up to the Ritz, me and my friends, but we weren't supposed to go to Salt Lake, so we'd have to like, yeah, so we'd drive to Salt Lake. And I remember we'd eat mini thins once in a while, those little speed. Oh. Um, once in a while we'd do that to- How old are you then? Um, 16 wow. to 18. Um, One question, uh, sorry to interrupt. You're fine. But. Um, Raised in LDS home, LDS community, mm -hmm. uh, like you said, you had the wine cooler at your friend's house, and you said you didn't think anything. 
Did you not have a problem with guilt did you, when you yeah. were younger? Or did yeah. you have a problem with yes. guilt? Yeah. I always felt guilty. You always with felt everything guilty. I did. Oh, you did I feel I always guilty. felt like I had done something wrong or like I couldn't measure up or I couldn't. So you're not some sociopath who is just, I don't care. No. You were doing things and you felt guilty about yeah. them, but you did them anyway. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And it, I think that that guilt a little bit led into like more doing more things because then I didn't I didn't like the way that felt mm. and so um, so the feelings number... were always hard to deal with huh. I, I remember like just feelings in general as, as an addict it, I, I know now that feelings are difficult for addicts like huh. just in general mm -hmm. good bad all of them all of them are tough <laughs> wow. yeah yeah um, so like we were um, my friends and I, we were, we were heading up, I was 18, and we were heading up to the Ritz to go dancing. Maybe I was only 17. But anyway, um, and we started to like tell each other, let's share our deepest secrets. What's your deepest secret? And, and I had these flashbacks of um, being sexually abused when I was very little. And the only thing I could remember was this family member and that's it, like, and this light, and I knew something, like the feelings that it brought on, and the, I, I was, I was a mess. I couldn't go in the dance club. We ended up leaving that night, and I went home, and I actually tried to take my life that night. I, I, uh, I was done. I couldn't. I didn't know what to do with any of that. And the person that, that had, that, that I had seen do these things to me, was like a pillar of like the family, or like, and. Um, so I felt like that was, I had done something, like I, had, I was wrong in some way. And um, so that was difficult. And I couldn't talk to my family about that because, so I just didn't have anybody and I didn't know what to do. And so I was like, well, I'll take all these pills and just be done. And I woke up the next day and then I'm like, okay, I'm still alive. Like, now what do I do? <laughs> so um, I told my parents I need to get some help and they got me into therapy and then it was like what who what who what and um i'm like i can't tell you i can't share that with you i just can't i'm not ready and they're like kept pushing the issue and pushing it and then well what was it this person was it this person you know the name game yeah and and then so finally it came out who it was and they're like oh you're you're lying those things never happened wow. <laughs> and i i think they very innocently just didn't want to face what was going on with me and like um, that was difficult for them and I, I didn't want to be a, I don't want to cause a problem in the family I didn't want that to be the problem so that became really difficult for me to deal with and I didn't know how to handle that emotion and what how to feel about that um, and I went with my sister so I moved out of the house at 18 senior in high school I decided to go to Utah Valley State College so I went there instead of high school and got like high school college credit at the same time. And um, me and my sister went to a party one night and I was, everybody was drinking and I'm like, I'm done. Like, I know, like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. Like, how do I get out of myself? I don't drink. I don't want to drink. I'm not interested in that. But somebody here can get me high. <laughs> so I'm like, let's smoke some weed. Let's get high. So um asked around at the party and finally found somebody that would get me high and um, it was actually my sister 
that taught me Older how to smoke. Younger sister. Well. You're younger. That taught me how to smoke weed. But um, I smoked enough that I was like in love. That was like the answer. That was the cure. That was the solution to all that pain that I felt. Um, I, I didn't have to deal with that. I didn't have to feel that anymore. And I don't ever remember just being like that weekend, just going to go use on the weekend. I, from the get-go, I would, I would go to class high. I, and then I, my theory was if I was going to class high and learning the information, I had to take the test high. You know, and so like I just had to be high all the time. And so like for the rationale, <laughs> right? Making some great decisions. <laughs> so so if I'm gonna like smoke weed and then go to class, I need to smoke weed before I go take the test, and then I then it's just all the time. It was pretty much nonstop. Um, I did end end up graduating high school. Um, I walked into my class and graduated. Um, from then I. I needed to get out and get out of Utah, so I decided I was going to go. I <laughs> moved to Philmont Scout Ranch and worked at the Scout Ranch wow. in, in New Mexico for the summer. And I met my first husband there. Um, he he was there. We were both like working in the food booths or whatever, uh, food tents, and it was like a party all the time. Um, lots of drinking, lots of smoking weed, and then um, that's where I was really introduced to coke for the first time and just really um, started using, doing some coke and um, and a lot of it. <laughs> and a lot of it. Yeah. And um, my parents came there to, they knew something was going on, so they came there and like took me home and um, I was like, all right. so. I was home, I was unhappy, didn't want to be there. So in the middle of the night, one night, I just packed up a couple things in my car and drove to Texas to where he lived, um, left at midnight and drove straight down to El Paso, Texas. And then um, it was just like a party all the time. And it it was fun, I mean. <laughs> That's the thing. It was fun. I gotta say, anybody who has had even the well, the worst addictive problem, mm -hmm. there's a glimmer in their eye when they talk about it. Right? <laughs> there just is. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, that when you, when I when I think about like the beginnings of my using, yeah, I used for fun. I used to stop feeling, mm -hmm. and it worked. It was the solution. It was the answer to like the problems I was having at the time. And that. Um, Let me ask you something. What do you think it was that why so, where some people would have similar problems and say, well, I'm not going to go to substances. I'm going to start working out like a mad person or mm -hmm. get involved in a job to become rich. And But they have this deep problem still. Why do you think you said, I want to go to the thing that this, what, what was it in you that says, I want to escape. I don't want to face this and feel it. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Hmm. I think we all like find different ways to escape how we're feeling. Sure. I think a lot of it is like influence people are around at the time, maybe. Do you um, think that's healthy to, to escape what you're feeling? No. Yeah. Now just, I don't. Yeah, now you don't. Um, no. Now I don't, but I have a, a totally different philosophy on life sure. now than, I, than I've ever had. <laughs> Can't wait to hear it. Um, so cocaine, yeah. day, night, first husband, Texas. Yes. So we're living in Texas. 
we're not married. We're just, I'm living there. We were, we were punk rockers. Nice. Good job. <laughs> yeah. So that was really fun. Like, we underground punk. We'd throw shows, warehouses, and um, do the backyard band thing, the backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Underground. It was, it was a lot of fun. But it's there a was fun time. a lot of drugs mm -hmm. and a lot of partying. Um, you know, a lot of, like drinking and then Coke, keep, be able to keep drinking and, you know, nonstop. And, you know, there was some crazy times during that time. Um, but I, you know, that was pretty short. And then I, I don't know why I was ready to come home. Like we were breaking up, it was going to be done and I was coming home. And I moved back to Utah. And then I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> so I'm like pregnant. You know, I don't know what to do with my life and living here. And I, th okay, so when I left at that time, I thought I, th I'm going to leave these drugs behind. I'm going to leave the Coke behind. I'm going to leave the drinking all the time. The weed still is going to be my friend. Um, so I just felt like that was the answer. Like I wouldn't use Coke anymore. And that would be, really that's my big hang up is Coke. Um, and so... I I remember telling my mom that like it's I'll be all right. I'm just not going to use cocaine anymore. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How did she take that? <laughs> she was like, "Oh, okay. Good job, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Go get him, girl." <laughs> no, I think I really scared my parents. They really had no idea what to do with me or how to do how to mm -hmm. deal with me. But they you know, they were pretty good parents. They did a good job. They did the best they could. Sure. You know. The only thing they knew how, mm -hmm. really. Um, so then I'm pregnant. Um, we're talking on the phone, trying to figure out what to do. Um, so he decides that he's going to marry me. We're going to get married. I don't even remember how he proposed to me. I think he threw the ring across the room. Like here. Romantic type. Yeah. You know. Um, got married. So we jumped on our friend's bandwagon. Like they were getting married. So we decided we would have a double wedding. Mm. So we got married at the same time they got married. Um, I was like eight, seven months pregnant when I got married. And then we had one child, then had another. And during that time, we were only married together about 18 months. Um, we had two children and moved back and forth from El Paso to um, Springville in parents house i think three or four times like just very rocky crazy mm. um, keep the party going we would we would go down to el paso and then mail weed back to <laughs> back to springville and just wow. it was crazy um and the, some of the crazy adventures we went on um being able to support our habits and and things like that um Lots of drugs, lots of parties, lots of people around. Um, How long and, did that and the go kids. On? Um, so I finally ended up leaving. It was like a violent, abusive relationship. It wasn't. We were young. Mm -hmm. He was controlling, and I didn't like to be controlled. Mm -hmm. And so when he would try and control me, it would turn in physical. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so. There was lots of that, and I ended up going to a women's shelter in Texas and, and leaving him that way, and then um, drove up 
my dad came down and we drove up here with the kids. And, mm. and then, but you know, he always um, was around for the kids and would come here and take him for visits and things. I remember the first time he came up to take the kids for a visit, I hired a private detective to follow him around. Wow. Because <laughs> I was worried he was going to take my kids and uh, take off to Texas. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't want that to happen. So, but I always felt like I needed somebody in a relationship and somebody. And I met my second husband a week after I left my first husband. Mm. So jumped right into then like right into that. Um, we, uh, let's see, I don't know. We were together for about a year when we got married. And then I had my third son with him, um, my third child. And, and I just was a weed smoker. Like I just smoked weed. I thought if I just stay away from these other things, I'll be good. And so, you know, I, I did that for a long time. What do you think of people? Um, in our family, my daughter, she, my oldest daughter, she got herself into trouble and she could not stop smoking weed. Mm -hmm. She just, it really, the weed today, really powerful and it mm -hmm. really took, takes over her life. What do you think about people who say, I just smoke weed, that's all I do, just smoke weed? Well, I, it's, it's, it depends on if it the makes your life unmanageable. Right. You know, that really, that's where the key is right there. Like if, if you're doing something to the point, it doesn't even have to be weed. Right. It can be going to the gym. Sure. If it's making your life unmanageable, you have a problem with it. Right. It's, it then it's the addictive piece. You so know? do you carry that liberal uh, view into if someone says, I just do coke on weekends, would you say the same thing? I'd say good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah. See how long that works for it's you. It's interesting because you know? there are people who can manage smoking weed. And good. Yeah. You know, like yeah, more power to them. Like, yeah. I wish I could. Yeah. But you can't, so you don't. I, I know that. You know it. I know without a doubt. That's taken years of And there's of more wisdom. in that story. Yeah, let's but. keep going. I know without a doubt that I can't just smoke weed. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I really feel like it's just, that's the key is like, what does it do to your life? How do you feel? And, you know, I have family members that smoke weed. Mm -hmm. And... They're fine. They don't, you know. Just like you have family members, you have beer. Yeah. Every I mean, I feel the same way. They're yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. And just because they drink a beer every night doesn't make them an addict no. or an alcoholic. It's just the way they live their life and, you know, or the glass of wine at dinner or whatever right. it is. So we're going to get to your particular story, which is amazing, uh -huh. which is, and why you've taken the stance you have. But um, it's really difficult because so many people, especially in religion, They'll say, no, nothing, no, nothing, because it, it can lead to, but in many cases, pot or doesn't mm -hmm. lead. But in the cases of people like you and my daughter, yeah. it can mess you up so badly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's benefits. I mean, they say there's benefits to wine. Yeah. I truly see the benefits and I've seen the benefits of mm -hmm. smoking weed and of uh, marijuana and and you know, see, that makes some religionists cringe, but I yeah, agree with you. Yeah. I just hate the, the this is the, the rule. The staunch line. Oh, it just doesn't make sense. A, yeah. So yeah. continue on. Second husband, third son. Okay. Just smoking weed. Yeah. <laughs> smoking it, growing it, doing it. <laughs> it was so never like. So you're an like, industrious pot smoker. Yes. <laughs> never like a, 
like lightly doing, I did everything like balls to the wall. Like I believe that, I've seen you at work. You're good at That's it. That's great. All right. So where did that lead in your life? So um, we moved to Oregon because I thought it'd be easier to grow weed in Oregon really was the reason. Um, and never ended up growing any weed up there, but um, just things were crazy, rocky. Um, I think during that time, I really acted out a lot on uh, the sexual addiction and like the, like I, I don't know. Do they go hand in hand? Yeah, I, th I think so. For mm -hmm. me, yeah. So you're talking about going yeah. out on your husband or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which is gonna destroy your heart. Yeah. And make you guilty all the time. <laughs> Which makes you feel bad. Which makes you need guilty, more pot. More pot, more sex. Like right. Just it's the whole pot, the whole kettle. Yeah. yeah. It, and it went on that way. So I, yeah, we decided we weren't going to stay together. And um, I was moving back to Utah. The family get a new start. Um, so we moved back here. And then I, we were staying with my parents and I moved to Salt Lake and he stayed and lived with my parents for a little while longer and then I got on his feet and moved into an apartment and then from there I drank on the weekends. Like I remember going to the club and um, on Sunday nights I would go there and just watch a guy play guitar and it was like I didn't have to get drunk. It was just, it was like my, my peaceful time away from my kids because <laughs> yeah. they would go with their dads on Sunday night and then I could just be me at the at the bar listening to, and it was fine. Um, and I was working in management in a restaurant and I was kind of working my way up in management and, um, and I met, so I was single probably like three years um, and I met Jason. Um, my third husband, and he he was actually a bouncer at that bar that I would go to, and, and um, so I met him there, and he didn't smoke weed, he didn't, you know, just, he was a pretty normal guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I had worked my way up in management, so I was now a general manager at this restaurant, and um, I felt like I really kind of was putting my life together. Mm. And um, then we found out that he was going to be diagnosed with MS. Mm. And um, that was pretty devastating for me. Um, but I still wanted him in my life. And like, uh, so we decided to get married. Um, we, we said we were getting married so that for insurance reasons. Mm. For insurance reasons, we're going to get married, and then um, you can be double covered when you get diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Because we knew he was going to be diagnosed, we knew he had it, mm -hmm. um, but then there was no like waiting period or, like there used to be with with insurance. And so, so we got married. <coughs> we got married. I bought myself a new car. Um, he was diagnosed with MS, and I was promoted to general manager in one week. And that week, um, one of my employees, I, I guess I just had a lot going on. I looked tired. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but she came up and she goes, here, I have some for you. And she put some Coke in my hand. 
um, it was like a little envelope of it. And I was just off to the races. And so I, I seriously, I remember like that happening and then the next day going out and just getting a big portion, like an eight ball and like just as much as I could get. What um, is the eight ball? I don't know vernacular. That's like, right, it's, <laughs> it's like, um, it's about a hundred bucks worth. It's like okay. a, it's a good amount. Um, so I was spending, I had, I was spending about a hundred dollars, a couple hundred bucks a day. Whoa. <laughs> so needless to say, I didn't have the income to finance that. So I was like, um, and hiding that from my husband who didn't use and, um, and so I just started taking out a check loan here, cover the check loan here, and then just like this big. That known as kiting checks? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't care to find out what the actual crime was called. <laughs> oh. So, right, is it a crime? Maybe. <laughs> oh, geez. So you're writing checks to cover the debt? To, yeah. And then, and then, and then, some theft got involved because I didn't want to um, my husband to find out, and so I would still to like take this home, and then he would know where the money was going, and like it, it just turned into this huge, huge mess. And that was our first year of marriage. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. that was great. Um, I just, I was a mess. So, and then, really, all the, all those. Times, you know, people would have like the painkillers and things like that. And, and so I would use those things throughout. And I didn't really know why I was, I was feeling like that or like I had to use all the time, but I just did. Mm. Um, and I, we, so in 2000, we got married April 1st, 2006. And in December of 2006, I got pulled over for the first time when I was like gone <laughs> and um, I they did a breathalyzer and there was it was zero and I was so pissed because they were still arresting me oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm like I don't like I'm not I don't understand this how do you get a DUI and you're not breathing any alcohol I haven't been drinking and they like searched my car and I'm sitting in the front seat cuffed and they're searching my car and the cop like picks up a joint and like holds it up and I remember just starting laughing because it was smoked on like both ends. <laughs> like I had forgotten which way to smoke it. So oh I just God. smoked the other side. <laughs> that I was pretty gone. But I was still like, I hired an attorney. I was like, I'm gonna fight this because they can't, you know, and they did a blood test. And I remember going to the attorney's office and going in there and um, <laughs> they, did the blood work and I was reading it and I couldn't believe what was in there. Oh, I bought morphine that day, what I thought was morphine. <laughs> I was so pissed because there was no morphine in my blood. <laughs> so... Are you taking pride in that? I have morphine, damn it. Why isn't it showing like, up? That guy ripped me off. <laughs> I really thought that. I remember, yeah. <clears throat> that's but that's my train of thought. That's where I was. That's right. where I was thinking. <laughs> I got ripped off. I yeah. didn't even have morphine in my blood. <laughs> but like Coke was off the chart, Xanax, like name name drug, it was there. Like morphine was not. 
Wow. <laughs> it was you crazy. You bought it, darn it. <laughs> Now, yeah. our audience or some in our audience, there's a, there's a segment, a large percentage of the people who watch our shows who uh, don't let us know they watch, they don't subscribe, mm -hmm. they're very religious, they're very critical. Mm -hmm. They're going to be saying, while you sit and laugh and I'm laughing mm -hmm. with you, you know, what's wrong with her? What? How, how could yeah. she? You know, yeah. what, how would you be so uh, frivolous with what you take into your body? And, and, but you have said here, maybe twice, I don't know why. You, yeah. you say, I don't know why I, what, you, you just had to, was it, was it the desire to just escape and have fun? Some of it. Some of it. Well, yeah, and I think I, I didn't like who I was. You didn't like who you were. I, and that, I don't know. For me, it's like this big empty pit that, you know, like when you feel nerves or, you know, you have this black pit that's mm. just, and it was pretty big, like, and I didn't know how to fill that. And um, do you still have it? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know how to feel it today in <laughs> yeah. healthy ways. Yeah. Um, they've learned a lot from it, but I think it's like trying to stuff that and trying to not feel. Mm. I think had a lot to do with it. Mm. And at that point, I really just. Like I felt bad about this, and so I would use this. And then I felt bad about this, so I'd use this. Mm. And then I felt bad I was lying to my husband, so I would do this. Mm. And it was just like steamrolled, yeah. you know? I was supposed to be at my son's band concert that night. I was on my way to his band concert and um, in like junior high. And I w instead I went to jail. Wow. And, you know, that... Overnight? Um, First time in your life? It was the first time I went to jail. They kept me for a while because I wasn't very was kind of unruly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I probably needed to be there for a minute. but It's good you can look back and say that. Yeah. I probably needed to be there. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you have three sons now? Uh, son, daughter, son. son so daughter, three son. children, yeah. Okay. So did your husband find out? So then, kind of, like I told him, I was I kind of been having a, a dabbling around with coke a little, having a little bit of a problem. And so I decided I was going to do this group therapy session thing where I don't even remember what it was called, but we'd go and sit. It was like group therapy. You'd go sit in a group and everybody would talk. And, um, but I couldn't stay clean through that. And so I would have to go use to be able to go handle the group therapy. Wow. <laughs> so it, it, it just kept, I kept using and using. And they finally did like an intervention mm -hmm. at the group therapy and decided that you need inpatient and convinced me to go inpatient treatment. And so I did, I went to an inpatient treatment in Ogden. Mm -hmm. um, and I did like their 28-day program um, and met uh, a friend there in that program and um, we became friends and talked, graduated the program, you know. I I can, when I get in line and can, I can do well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can do all right yeah. if, I, if I want to, That's... you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, I'm sure it's frustrating for my parents, geez. Mm. But, um, so I, I did and, so I, I just made new friends. So we got out and um, 
I don't remember what happened or why, but I wasn't doing the things that they had said to do. Or I started using again, mm. and um, and then it had escalated, and I was, um, and then I was, I maybe smoked heroin a couple times, and then it was, I felt like that was such a waste, mm. and so. Um, I picked up a needle, one of my husband's needles from his MS treatments, and and I just, on my own, tried it out, and completely by myself, nobody was there, um, and used a needle for the first time. Um, and he, he still didn't know what was going on completely. Um, he knew I had been using a little bit of this or a little bit of that, but he had no idea that what I was doing. And, to what extent and at that point I didn't have a job anymore I'd been fired from my job mm. I had you know and I would I would tell him that I was gonna go to work and I would go to like the park mm. and hustle wow. you know to be able to use that day and then be able to take home some money and um, does hustling mean what I think it means no well somewhat no <laughs> probably not <laughs> <laughs> Not that kind of hustle. Not that kind of hustle. No. <laughs> that meant something when I grew up. <laughs> so, like, in terms of, like, um, pawn things. I would oh, okay. go pawn things okay. or um, ask people for money. Or, Were you having to steal then, too? Um, I didn't steal from other people. I stole from my husband. Mm. I stole from myself. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Just reminded me of a story. I actually, my husband was at home and he didn't work, and so I actually kind of broke into my own house to steal stuff because wow. he was like asleep and I didn't want him to know, and so like I cracked the garage door and like it was bad. Wow. Like that's the thought process, like yeah. the just the sick. I was sick. Whatever um, it takes. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't even think that at the time. Like I'm parked down the street from my house, and I like go sneaking over there mm -hmm. and like I don't know. I don't remember what I took out of the garage, but did you have children with? At that point, um, I we my three older children were still living with me. Okay, and we, me and my husband, did not have any children. I see. We had been married. We had, um, celebrated a year of marriage, and and then I'm using heroin like every day as much as I can. I wake up if I don't use, I'm sick. Um, oh, just that I was full full in the throes of it. And um, I was friends with that guy from treatment and he came over and we did some drugs and stuff and then he went home and he lived up north in Logan and I lived down here. And then he called me up one day and he's like, I'm trying to kick this. And so for an addict, when you want to when you want to stop using one drug you use another drug mm. because you want to counteract the effects of the side effects or like the you know mm. and so i'm like well i have this that'll work for you and so i drove it up to logan and dropped it off with him and um and then it was probably a week later 10 days later he called me and said i have i you want to make some money well at that point i'm like i'm doing anything to make money yeah, and so um, I drove up to Logan. I said, but I don't have any money to buy any drugs. <laughs> so I drove up to Logan to pick up money and then drove <clears throat> back to Salt Lake to pick up the drugs and then drove back to Logan 
to deliver them. And um, when I when I got there and delivered them, I, I was pretty much arrested on the spot. Like at the, when I gave him the drugs, um, we were surrounded. And he threw a big fit and all this. And then they cuffed him in the front and put him in the front of the cop car. Yeah. And I was like, that was weird. And that's when I started to put it together that like he just set me up, like I just got set up. And so I was, <sighs> I was actually um, charged at that point with like six felonies, two first degree, two second degree, and two third degree felonies. And um, I thought I thought that was it. It was over. Like, and I went to jail. Um, first time I detoxed from off of heroin wow. in a jail that? cell. I thought I was gonna die. Um, I, I was so sick that I didn't know. In the in the jail, they were. I was so sick they didn't have room in medical to like put me in medical. Then they wouldn't put me in general population, and so I detoxed in holding. Wow. Um. And I didn't know I couldn't eat, but it, like everything was coming out, like every pore, and I just thought it stunk because I was in jail, and that's just what you smell in jail is yeah. stinky. And, but I didn't think it was me. <laughs> But it was, it was, um, yeah, and I lost a bunch of weight, like, even more than what weight I already, you know, I was down to nothing anyway, and, um, and I, I'm there in the jail cell, my, my family won't answer the phone, they're done with me, like, they're done, like, we're not gonna, um, my kids, um, are with my new husband and their dads and they were nobody would answer the phone my husband wouldn't answer the phone um, my in-laws I was able to talk to my husband through a bell bondsman like he would talk to the bell bondsman and I could hear him but he wouldn't talk to me um, and uh, I thought that was it I'm done like I'm gonna leave here and be on the street and um, I'm done I ended up going to court it was like 10 days in and when I walked into the courtroom he was there my husband was there and um, that gave me like a glimpse of hope that I was like maybe I might be okay I don't know but I didn't know what to do I didn't know how to do anything about any I, I like I knew that you could get help because I had been through treatment, but I didn't. It was I didn't think that was for me. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, One really quick question: After you go through the hell of detoxing in the in the holding cell, and you go through all that, when you go to court ten days later or whatever it was, and you see your husband, you think there's hope. Are you still thinking of drugs, or after going through that hell, do you say I'm done with heroin? It was probably seven days in in the jail cell before I stopped thinking of how I'm going to get out of here and get my high. Wow. And then I started thinking like, what, how am I going to not get high? Mm. It was probably seven days before I started to, wow. before it shifted a little bit. Okay. Um, and I got out at 10 days, they released me on my own recognizance because um, they didn't have the labs back on the drugs that they had done. And um, we didn't talk all the way home. He wouldn't talk to me at home. And I'm like, I just need to shower because I've got to get this wretched stench off me. 
and take a bath and then I'll feel better. Like that'll make it, mm. I've already been clean for 10 days. Like I shouldn't feel like this anymore, but it was very painful. It was very, it was the most painful thing I've ever gone through. Like it was pretty intense. Um, I didn't know, I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand. I couldn't, I was miserable, like crawling out of my skin. Um, and uh, nothing helped. And I remember it being like, and I couldn't sleep. <laughs> so no hell. sleep on, uh, yeah, pure hell. Pure I hell. mean, it really was. And I didn't know what to do. And like five in the morning, um, I remember like crying and like being I just hopeless. And I went into the other room, into the front room. And um, I remember... Uh, <laughs> I remember thinking, well, I remembered a little bit about for treatment the first time and that like if you surrender, like you can surrender and then you can give up and like, and that'll help. And I'm like, I don't know how to do this. And so I actually took the pillows off the couch and put them down on the floor and I like knelt down there and um, I just started praying like, God, like save me. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. Um, help me. And then I all of a sudden I like felt better. Like <laughs> it was so weird. Mm. Like <laughs> I believe you. I I felt <laughs> like that was the only thing I could do mm. and not feel all that pain. Um, I really felt like uh, like I'd been hugged, mm. you know, almost. Um, and I <laughs> sat there and cried and prayed. And it got to be about seven, it probably a couple of hours I sat there. And just I remember just saying over and over, I surrender, I give up. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. I surrender. And um, then I had a thought, oh, my dealer opens at eight. Oh my <laughs> I know how not to feel this way anymore. Yeah. So, um, but I thought I should call my mom first. So I called my mom and she answered and I said, I'm... I don't know what to do. I don't know. I need help. And um, my dealer opens in an hour. I just remember being completely honest with her. And that's that's how I take this pain away. And uh, she said, I'll be there. I'm on my way. And so she drove up and she was by my side, literally by my side <laughs> for two days wow. until they could get me into treatment. Um, I, like... Every, if I went into the bathroom, right there. <laughs> she searched my purse. I think she was not going to let me use. <laughs> so for two days, I'm detoxing, going through pain, feeling horrible, um, trying to figure out how to get into treatment, facing six felonies, didn't know what to do with my kids. My husband wasn't talking to me. I just was done. Like, um, ended up signing custody of my children over to their dads um, because I... I couldn't take care of them. I, I didn't know what my life was facing. Mm. And I didn't know where it was going to go. So I said, here you go. Like, step up, be a dad. Mm. And they willingly did that. Um, even after all that that we put them through. So we are running short, but yeah. we might go over a few minutes. So tell me, um, what happened with the court? So I, I pled to uh, two felonies. 
and a reduction of charges. It's called a 402. Mm -hmm. And so um, once you complete all your probation and everything, then your charges are reduced and you... Um, so I'm no longer a felon today. Awesome. Um, I was able to, I got out of jail, I did a 45 day treatment um, and did well. Um, and the judge, it was one year after I was sentenced, um, he dropped the like mm -hmm. the charges down to misdemeanors and mm -hmm. and uh, so I'm not a felon today. There's so that. <laughs> was it clean living from that point forward? For the most part. Um, you know, I, I managed to put together about three years clean um, and then started drinking and smoking pot again and thought that I could be normal and just drink and smoke pot. I don't know how much time we have. You just keep going. Oh. <laughs> you just made me really nervous. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so <laughs> um, I got about three years put together and then drinking, smoking, so then it, I acted out again on my addiction and I cheated on my husband. And um, that guilt and shame and all that uh, really came back because um, he'd stayed with me all through all that time. And I just, I don't know what I was thinking. But um, he stayed with me. And um, so I thought, well, and because of his MS, he had started smoking pot to help with his symptoms. And that's where I've seen it benefit yeah. people. Like I've seen the benefits of it because it really benefited him. Um, and so I thought like if I smoke weed with him and give him my recovery, then I'll feel better about this than I did over here. Um, and so I did that and it, things were pretty normal um, up until uh, 2017 and then I started taking some pills here and there not really sharing that with him and um, and then um, in September of 2017 he passed away um, from complications to MS and at that point um, I knew how not to feel I knew just what to do how not to feel again. And I wasn't doing any of the things, working a program or doing anything um, that I needed to do in my life to be able to stay away from drugs or like having those connections with people that are so important. Um, and so I, I knew that if I started using, I wouldn't feel all that. And so I, that night I went and hooked up again, got me some crack and then that just didn't cut it. Um, and I knew, I knew the next thing, you know, was back to the needle. And the interesting part about all that was it took me right back to, right back to the exact spot that I was when I was arrested. Wow. Like within a week. It was so quick wow. that I was, it's like for me, my addiction is just sitting there waiting and ready and um, waiting for that moment when it can just like take over my life again. Um, You've shared with me at uh, the store, you may not even remember this, where you're <coughs> you were having a bad day and we were in there in the morning and you said something like, it's a bad day. And, and I think I asked you about, you know, do you fight addiction? And you say, 
I fight, it's constantly saying to me, you can handle it, you, you can go to this, you can do it. Every day you're faced with a decision on how to handle stress, how to cope, mm-hmm. and you're deciding all the time whether to go back to that or not. Is that true? Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely an everyday. The difference today is I have a choice and I'm clear-headed. Mm-hmm. And I've been given that choice because I chose, because I'm clean. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the minute I put a substance in my body, that choice is gone. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, then my addiction takes over. You know, and doctors and stuff have explained it, like your brain and the way that it functions and the way that it takes over and like all this big words. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel that, you know, um, and I have felt that mm-hmm. since then. I, um, there was an incident where I accidentally drank some alcohol. That's what you're telling me, yeah. Yeah. Share that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I accidentally drank some alcohol. <laughs> yeah. And what did your mind say? You it, it said, well, you, it's hit your, it's like, drink it, drink the rest of it. You're, it's already in your system. You already can smell it on your breath. If you can smell it on your breath, then it doesn't matter. It's okay. You can go ahead and go down, like, just down the street three blocks, you can go get some crack. And then you already look fucked up because you just had alcohol in your system. Mm-hmm. So now you can go ahead and go down there and, and use and get fucked up. And then you don't have to feel bad because you drink that alcohol. I mean, it took All me, from mistakenly? Yeah. From it just hitting my palate. It didn't even go down my throat, like... Yeah, and it, it like my addiction took me all the way down that road back to I. It's okay for me to use now, and it, it like instant. You know those thoughts that you have um, that immediately take you back, mm-hmm. really sure. quick. Yeah, yeah. It's like that quick, just instantly. And so I I know, like if I put a substance in my body mm-hmm. that changes my that's mind altering or, mm-hmm. or mood changing that it will take me. It's back there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I had surgery, right? And I was very cautious about that and scared because of the substance. They're mm-hmm. going to put that those substances in my body. Mm-hmm. And so I wake up from surgery. I remember being in the um, recovery and then coming in and going, how are you feeling? I'm like, oh, I'm in so much pain. Mm-hmm. And I remember them giving me pain medication mm-hmm. and instantly be going, that's not enough. I need wow. some more. I need some more. And like being able to manipulate them in, in recovery, in the recovery room, like being con- like my d- addiction was self-consciously able to convince me to convince them that I needed more pain medication because I wanted to feel that high. I want to say something to the audience and that is that, you know, it's in our culture, our capitalistic culture to look down on people who have addiction problems. Uh, we just automatically think that they're weak. We automatically think that they're inferior, even though we all have them ourselves. And uh, I, the empathy, the sympathy that comes out from this discussion uh, is so important to our viewers because if we can't understand that there are people, I have a daughter who's like that, mm-hmm. I'm like that, but with, with food, mm-hmm. that it's real. And it is something that's part of your DNA, your genetic, plus your, your experience as a child and those mm-hmm. bad memories and then the snowball effect. 
And, you know, there should be nothing but empathy for addicts. Mm -hmm. Who wants to be an addict? Well, do you know what the opposite of, of addiction is? What or is like it? the connection. Mm. It's love and connection, you know? Mm. The, the addict needs connection. Mm. Um, they, it's just, and I, I, that's why 12-step groups work so well mm. for addicts. It's because of that connection that they get, that connection that they get with that higher power and that, um, with God and mm -hmm. um, today when I feel that empty and that hole you asked me about that mm -hmm. um, I feel it with service you know I go and do service this to me is service mm -hmm. um, I do other forms of service you know um, and I whatever whatever I can do you know if another addict calls me at you know in the middle of the night and struggle and I'm on the phone with them if mm -hmm. they need to be the if it's that service it's being able to give of yourself and when I'm struggling and I'm having a really hard time trying to get out of my head um, the universe my higher power God you know whatever um, to me I call it God um, puts those service opportunities in my life and that connection and you know I have a family that loves me and my kids love me and so when I when I surround myself with those things that's what fills that hole and that's what um, reminds me that I, I can't go back down that road mm. it's like I know if I pick up and use again exactly where I'm gonna end up mm. exactly where I'm gonna that's be quite a gift right back in that gutter <laughs> you know to I know do that. I know that but if, if I don't I have no idea yeah, I'm already like blown away with where my life is and where it can go and like I, I will be amazed at where I'm gonna be and where my life will take me and it was really none of my business so it'll just go there right mm. <laughs> if I just stay clean you know and so that's the way I look at it you know and some days it's just some days I have to actually tell myself I'm not gonna use today tomorrow I'll pick up tomorrow and you know and my tomorrow never comes yeah it hasn't yet that. so <laughs> you know nicole uh you know i sit there and i have the bird's eye view of the whole store and, and i'm there for four or five hours every, almost every day you're not only doing what you do with other people and with your family i've seen your children come in and <clears throat> but you have quite a team there that you're influential on and those young kids Boy, when they start talking, I'm just like, oh, where's the hope in America? But <laughs> you're so good with them. And you're a mother figure to them, and you give them opportunities, and you, let, you make them work, but you're also fun with them, and you understand them, and they're all doing all kinds of stuff, you know. But you have such empathy and such an ability to relate with those kids. And then also I know you do your meetings, and uh, just so, so proud of you, so, so grateful that I could meet you. And um, what you've brought to my life, even as a father with, with my daughters, who they struggle with different things mm -hmm. too, and, and just with people that we deal with, uh, you've been an inspiration. I'm really grateful for your uh, taking the time to share it and coming yeah. here and, and share it with us. Yeah. Is there uh, one, a couple questions and then a final word to the audience of okay. final thing you want to say? I'll think what, about that. <laughs> let's, let's pretend this is not ever going to happen. But if for some reason down the road you decided to forget 
that you are an addict and you decide mm -hmm. to go down that road and I understand that you are using again, what could I say to you? Oh God. That would <sighs> cause you, that would help, that would be of benefit. I love you, I care about you. Does that even matter? Uh, that's such a good question. <laughs> you know, I would love to say that that would matter, but I don't know that right. it would. Right. Um, you know, it, it's such a tough thing because it's it's like once you're to that point, that choice is gone. Mm. Once you, you know, an addict puts a substance in their body, it's really, um, for me, it's really taken acts of acts of God to like mm. get me to wake up and like mm. get clean and see, um, be able to process those things. Um, telling an addict that you love them no matter what, mm -hmm. um, and showing them that you love them no matter what, and sometimes that means not giving them money and not helping them. You know, and letting them be homeless and letting them hit their bottom. You mm -hmm. know, everybody's bottom's different and how they get there and how deep it is. Mm -hmm. um, but it all feels the same. Mm -hmm. The feelings of that hopelessness and that loss and that pain. Mm -hmm. um, but the bottom and how, you know, and yeah, the sad part is, is some of us never actually hit it, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? Um, I've lost a lot of friends mm. um, to the disease of addiction. And mm. I've had, um, it's, it's, you know, you wish you could do something, mm. <laughs> but there's really not much you can do. It's just a matter of like um, loving them no matter what and then being there when they're ready to get back on their feet. Mm. Um, supporting an addict that's fighting the addiction that's when you can help them. Mm. Yeah. So well put. Yeah. That's great. I, one last question, and I have to give you, because there's got to be something you can say to our audience before you're done, and it's been such a beautiful time together. Yeah, we've <laughs> prepared those for you specially. <laughs> um, the criticism from people who, who have great serotonin, and they have perfect lives, and they just don't get addicted to anything, <laughs> I don't understand them, but they're out there. The word they use toward addiction and people who have them is selfish. Everything yeah. you do is so selfish. It's just for you, you, you. It's just selfish. How, what do you think about that? Having been there, I mean, would you say it is selfish, but, I mean, how do you answer that? Um, addiction is a very self-centered, selfish disease. Mm. Um, that's what it is. That's like the core of it, hmm. you know. And when you're fighting that, you're learning how to live in a different way, like a new way to live, and not be self-centered. Hmm. You know, it's not about me. You know, doing this isn't about me. Hmm. It's about whoever's out there that needs to hear this, hmm. um, and getting out of yourself. And I, I think the twelve-step programs really. Put a lot of focus on that mm. because it I mean I have to agree <laughs> yeah. and is that where service comes in yeah which is selflessness mm -hmm. yeah yeah 
I think that's where you, you can really fight it. Mm. You know, um, that's why you see so many um, addicts, recovering addicts out there, you know, on the streets mm -hmm. helping others because that's how they help themselves. Mm. That's really it's what it is. Yeah. Final thought to the audience. Young teenagers, we have some teenagers who watch the show who might be just smoking pot, but they're thinking, yeah, I'm seeing this other stuff. It's kind of, I mean, maybe you don't even want to go down that road. Do you have something to say, a message of hope, a way to help people who are addicted currently? Anything that's on your heart right now, wrap it up for us. Um, basically, there is, there is hope. Like, when you're, when you're ready to face your addiction and stop, there's hope. Like, that's, there's, there's a solution. There's help out there. Um, there's lots of people out there willing to help and to help each other. One addict helps another, and we just find ways to help each other stay clean. And um, I am so grateful that I have the life that I have today. And I am, I am a grateful addict mm. today. I'm glad I've gone through what I've gone through because I wouldn't be able to help those that um, need it when they need it. And you know, not every addict is ready to get help, but when they are, it's it's those loving arms that are ready to be there and hold them up. And um, you know, that's when that's when you can help an addict. Beautiful time. Thank you so much, my friend and my sister, Nicole Wade, who gave us great insight. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.